Welcome to Mason Institute Investigates, a podcast series produced by the Mason Institute funded by the Edinburgh Law School. In each episode, we investigate current national and global issues involving ethics, law and policy in health, medicine and the life sciences. Hello and welcome back to Mason Institute Investigates. I'm Leila Nuri, and in this episode, I'm going to share the best parts of Just Emergencies, a podcast produced by my colleague Rebecca Richards from the Edinburgh Law School. This podcast series is the result of a Welcome Seed Award project called Vulnerability and Justice in Global Health Emergency Regulation, Developing Future Ethical Models. Rebecca examines the term global health emergencies, their significance, and the general interest in achieving justice in global health emergencies. And out of the podcast 16 episodes, I'm going to focus on the Vulnerability series, a set of six episodes in which Rebecca talks to guests about the concept of vulnerability and its application to the recent COVID-19 pandemic. In the six episodes, Rebecca discovers that the pandemic did generate vulnerabilities or indeed exacerbated existing vulnerabilities. Now, whether the COVID-19 pandemic is officially over or not, these vulnerabilities are persisting till now and will continue to persist because of the long-term effects of the pandemic. But first of all, what do we mean by vulnerability? In part one, Professor Wendy Rogers from the Macquarie University in Australia and co-editor of Vulnerability, New Essays in Ethics and Feminist Philosophy talked about the difficulty in defining the term. Quite widely, when you talk about a person being vulnerable, it seems intuitively that we understand what that means. We have an an image of someone who can't protect themselves or who's in in exceptional danger, perhaps, um, or is at a particular life stage, like a, a newborn baby or perhaps a very frail person. And so we have an idea of what vulnerability means, but in the philosophical literature, the ethics literature and even the bioethics literature, it wasn't really pinned down very well as to what ethical duties were owed to people who were vulnerable um, and whether there was a way of trying to make it conceptually clearer. And this was because there were two almost opposing schools of thought about vulnerability and one was that vulnerability was like an ontological condition, like a condition of being human, you know, no matter who you are, whether you're the most powerful person or the least powerful person, you will you will bleed if you are cut, you will die if you are, um, you know, bashed hard enough on the head. So everybody's vulnerable in some sense. But if you say everybody's vulnerable, then it's not a useful term for indicating that some moral response is required other than very general ones like, you know, not, not harming other people. Um, so opposed to that school of thought or approach to vulnerability was a second approach which was particularly dominant in research ethics and that was all about um, picking out certain groups of people who were vulnerable. And, and what that meant in research ethics was that if you were considered vulnerable that you should have extra protections or people should take special care. And the groups that were picked out varied um, from guideline to guideline, but often included um, the elderly children, prisoners, pregnant women, um, people who were considered to lack power to perhaps make decisions for themselves because they're in relationships of authority, like patients and doctors or prisoners and teachers and students and so on. Um, but again, it was hard to see what was linking all of those. For some of them, it was a, um, a lack of cognitive capacity, people who couldn't make decisions for themselves because they were severely ill or had a cognitive impairment. But for others, like pregnant women, you know, clearly their cognitive capacity wasn't impaired, but they were considered vulnerable as well. And so it was, it, it was just a very messy field. So being philosophers, we thought, well, perhaps we can try and tidy it up. <laughs> 
and, and we didn't want to throw out the, the universal notion, um, but at the same time we recognised that although all people bleed, some people are much more likely to get cut than others. So we ended up with a, a taxonomy that has three parts. So the, the, first, the first two divisions are looking at vulnerability sources. So that's vulnerability that arises basically from, from being a human being and having the needs that all human beings share for, for food and shelter, for um, <clears throat> social interaction and so forth. And we call that um, inherent vulnerability. And in addition to vulnerability arising from the sort of inherent features of being a human being, we also described situational vulnerability, which is vulnerabilities that arise when from the context you're in. So they will, will vary from situation to situation and person to person. So a person who's already has poor health is more vulnerable if they get the influenza than a healthy person, for example. And we felt that it was useful to look at the different sources of vulnerability because that might help look at what duties are owed and who those duties accrue to. And within the category of situational vulnerability, we, we came up with a, um, a subdivision of situational vulnerability, which we called pathogenic vulnerability, which is not technically the correct term um, in terms of what pathogenic means in medical terms, but we, we used it at a conference and people just seemed to very attracted to that term. So the term stuck even though technically you might argue it's not correct. And we identified pathogenic vulnerability as basically arising from unjust circumstances. And the unjust circumstances might be obvious and perhaps intentional, like policies that keep unemployment levels at a certain um, a certain a certain number of people unemployed. So no matter what you do, there's always going to be some hundreds of thousands of people who can't find work. Um, so that's a kind of intentional vulnerability driven by whatever the government's policy is. But you can also get people who are made worse off by policies and interventions, and it's unintentional. And we we call that pathogenic vulnerability as well. And examples of that might be a policy to try and support elderly people to stay in their own homes and so you employ a carer to come and visit them but that elderly person is then exposed to, the, to a carer in a way they wouldn't be if they were um, within their family or living in an, in, a, in an institution with more people looking around and they're vulnerable to abuse from that carer. Um, and we've seen, particularly in Australia, where we've had the last few years the most horrendous Royal Commission into institutional child abuse, where children were taken into care in institutions, allegedly for their protection and, so forth, and, and just suffered the most horrendous abuse. And we would call that a pathogenic vulnerability. It was a, something that was meant to help them, but instead it made them much worse off than if they, probably in some cases, if they'd even stayed living on the street. One of the issues in defining vulnerability is, how do you define the bare minimum? What is the baseline when it comes to determining a point at which someone becomes vulnerable? And how can comparisons be drawn at an individual level, but also at a population level? Professor Samia Hurst from Geneva Medical School addresses this in part five. Whatever baseline you adhere to, you also have to recognise that if some people will have a harder time reaching that baseline, you will have to define these people as vulnerable and take special measures in order to get them to that baseline. 
But you're completely right. These baselines are the objects of debate, of disagreements, um, of uh, differences in culture. And sometimes what we call differences in culture are simply differences in material circumstances. And so we did not say anything to that. There are many different views on the, the morally protected claims of humans. There are many different views of what a decent minimum would be and on whether a decent minimum is what should be attained or something else. Um, but uh, at, at very minimum, conceptually speaking here, if you recognize a claim, whatever claim you recognize, there will be, a, a, there will be forms of vulnerability attached to it. Uh, there will be people who have a harder time reaching the fulfillment of that claim, and this will happen for different reasons. And the way in which to bring them back to the baseline will vary according to the reasons. So you really need to have a very differentiated view here. But what we're saying is you cannot simultaneously recognize a claim and disregard the vulnerabilities that are attached to it. Another interesting concept that was explored in the series was the idea of perceiving vulnerability as layers, that several different vulnerabilities and contexts can interact with one another within a single individual. Professor Florentia Luna, Programme Director of Bioethics at Flasco and author of the book Bioethics and Vulnerability, A Latin American View, explained the concept. So I began interested in vulnerability when I read uh, an article of Carol Levine et al. And they were criticizing very strongly this concept. And they were taking the so-called traditional approach. And I still think it is a very relevant and important concept. So what I tried was to give a new conceptualization to this concept in order to avoid stereotyping, that vagueness, uh, and the problems, most of the problems they were thinking. So one of the problems I thought was that they were thinking in a label, like, well, old people are vulnerable, pregnant women are vulnerable. And the issue is more than thinking in labels, I say, well, I will use the metaphor of layers. What I think is that we should think in the functioning of the concept. And this functioning is relational and dynamic. So it interacts with the context and vulnerabilities may change with the context. So I think that instead of thinking in like these categories that this traditional analysis suppose, we should think in layers. Because I think that this traditional view, there is in a way uh, some essentializing in this kind of analysis, supposing that these are the people that are vulnerable. What I try to show is that it's not something essential, it's not a category, it varies with the context. So for example, I give the example of being a woman, per se, you are not vulnerable. But if you live in Argentina where your reproductive rights are not respected, and if you have an unwanted pregnancy, you cannot terminate your pregnancy, you acquire a layer of vulnerability. 
the more layers you have, the more vulnerable you are. So that, that was my first and initial way of thinking vulnerability. So what I began was trying to think first, like what we have to do is to identify different layers. We have to see how harmful they are and how probable they are. How probably probable they will get to appear or render someone really harm that person. And also, I thought that what we needed was to evaluate those layers in order to then see how how we can operate with that. And uh, I begin thinking in two key concepts. One is that, uh, well, layers, for me, they are dispositions. And in one of the characteristics of dispositions is that they need something to be triggered. So when there are these trigger conditions, this, uh, these triggers or these stimulus conditions, the vulnerability will be triggered and the person will be harmed. So I think this is very important. If we have stimulus conditions near, we are in a worse situation and we will have to find the ways to avoid that or minimize or whatever. So that's one key concept. And the second one, uh, which I take uh, from the work of uh, uh, Wendy Rogers, uh, Katriona McKenzie, Mick Lange, etc., is the idea of cascade. I think that some of these layers may have this cascade effect. Um, and I, I say that I, I take it from them because they use this idea and they call it pathogenic vulnerability. In, in their view, there are sources or layers of vulnerability may exacerbate existing vulnerabilities or generate new ones. A layer may bring in many other layers or several ones and may render the person more and more vulnerable. And I think that in practice, what we can do then is identify layers of vulnerability see if there are stimulus conditions that may trigger that vulnerability, we have to try to avoid that. And also see if there is some of these vulnerabilities, these uh, layers of vulnerabilities have this cascading effect. So uh, I, what I think is that once you identify these characteristics, you can rank the different layers of vulnerabilities. And in this sense, you can set different obligations like avoid exacerbating vulnerabilities, eradicate them if you can. Sometimes you cannot, so you will have to minimize them. And very importantly, empower persons in order to be able to avoid or minimize eradicate those vulnerabilities. Now that we have an idea of what vulnerability is, what does this look like in a global health emergency? Professor Rogers provided examples. In any global health emergency, 
Um, there are going to be people who are already living in more precarious circumstances, who have got less secure employment, who don't have insurance, who are going to be worse, made worse off by the same natural disaster. And I was thinking about flooding. We had floods in Queensland um, last year, and we've had we have floods quite regularly in, in Queensland. And it's a it's a disaster. People's houses get inundated, but. There's a huge outpouring of support from the community. People have um, insurance for their houses by and large. So although although it's a disaster, people are made worse off, but they're not brought to a level where they're they're precarious, really. As though it's not terribly unjust. And if you think about flooding in, in countries where there's a lot of people are very poor, they don't own their houses, they don't have insurance, they just lose everything um, and have maybe have no means of livelihood because their shop's been washed away. It's the same natural disaster, it's a flood, but it has a much greater impact because they were already in situational vulnerability, had a high level of situational vulnerability. So although people can be affected by the same disaster, the impact of that will vary um, according to what I would call their, their situational vulnerability. And, and, it, and it tracks poverty and disadvantage by and large. Um, again, people who are... Um, disadvantaged after living in more crowded circumstances they're more liable to for pandemics to spread more easily than if you're living in your gated community up on the hill where nobody gets in or out and coughs on you so that, that there's that kind of impact there professor hurst also distinguished two ways in which vulnerabilities were generated in the pandemic so i think that in a situation such as the one we are living through today um, the, the approach that I proposed for vulnerability is demanding, but it's the right kind of demanding in my view. It demands of us that we sit down and have a long, careful look at uh, who is most at risk of what in the current circumstances. It requires a good, long look at reality, uh, not just at how we have the intuition that things will play out, but how they are in fact playing out. And here there are at least two different changes of circumstances that could generate n- new vulnerabilities. Um, the first is the pandemic itself. Um, we have we are not equal in the face of it. We do not have equal risk of becoming sick. Most notably, very young children are less at risk of becoming seriously ill, which is a great fortune, but it also means that higher age groups are more at risk. We do not have the same risk of dying. Uh, We may find out in the future that we do not have the same risk of long-term consequences, although the data is not in yet on that chapter. And so the pandemic itself does not strike all of us in the same way. And so if we think of the claim to health, the claim to bodily integrity, um, the protections that come with that, some will be harder to protect than others from serious disease and death. And this is the most obvious factor. The second one is our pandemic response, what we humans do in response to the pandemic. And I'm thinking here of official responses, of government responses, of lockdowns, confinements, quarantine, isolation, testing, all of that. But I'm also thinking of responses by individuals. So, for example, when looking at economic consequences of the the pandemic, one of the most broadly misunderstood things, but which some colleagues of ours in Switzerland uh, explored, 
is that most of the economic downturn following the pandemic is actually due neither to the pandemic itself nor to official responses, but to spontaneous responses by individuals. It turns out people are afraid of contagion. So even if you don't close down the shops, people are not going to go. Even if you don't close down the restaurants, people will avoid them because they know there's a contagious disease around and they don't want to catch it. And so even countries with no lockdowns are also suffering economic downturns simply because people are scared and they change their behavior in consequence. And of course, the pandemic itself also attacks economies, not just anti-pandemic responses. And so we have these two components of response, the official collective one and the aggregate individual one. And if you think about who could be most vulnerable to each of those, this will very much vary with geography. Different governments are not taking the same measures, and these measures are not deploying themselves on identical societies. And so depending on how your society functions in normal times, uh, even the same measures will have different impacts on components of the population. So you really need, that's what I mean when I say you need a hard long look at reality. You need to think about who will be most affected by this or that official measure or this or that non-official reaction of people uh, on different population groups in your society. And some of the things are very predictable, others are not. And of course, we cannot be held to such a high standard that we must predict the unpredictable, but there's a lot that is predictable. So for example, um, in the country where I live in Switzerland, there has been um, a very broad government response to sustain individuals through the economic hardships of shutting down different economic activities. This has been actually one of the aspects of which I'm, for which I'm rather proud of my country. Um, there was help directly to people so that they would keep income while they were not working and so that uh, businesses would not have to pay workers so they wouldn't need to lay them off. That's really great. But we do have blind spots. People who are illegal workers aren't generally with a contract and an employer that's official and so these helps have a hard time reaching them and so predictably it's going to be harder for people who are illegal workers to go into confinement to avoid becoming uh, people who will transmit the disease and who um, who will then be able to go into isolation and quarantine as we deconfine and use these more targeted measures in order to limit contagion in the public sphere So now that we see how vulnerability works in a global health emergency, we can also understand how particular population groups were more susceptible to vulnerability during the COVID-19 pandemic. In the following examples, we can also understand how layering of vulnerabilities works. You could be part of more than one population group that was made vulnerable by the pandemic and therefore have different vulnerabilities that interact with each other. In part two of the series, Josephine Greenbrook, lecturer and researcher at the University of Gothenburg and a deputy director of the Mason Institute, discussed how the COVID-19 pandemic affected undocumented migrants and refugees. And I would say that uh, migrants more broadly and uh, absolutely undocumented migrants and asylum seekers are very often left in a position where they are excluded through different regulatory measures um, or policies or uh, simply just access, um, affordability and many other aspects. And they're also largely impacted by measures that are otherwise supposed to protect the majority. 
this because we do have absolute in the European context. We, for example, have plenty of camps where migrants are broadly kept, I would say, some undocumented, some registered somewhere in the European continent uh, because of different Dublin measures and so on. But keeping people uh, restricted in close quarters is 100%, not only unethical, but it's it's a public health and patient safety issue. And it's a, it's a safety issue also for whoever is in the camp who might not be sick, but also for those who are sick, who do get sick. And it will absolutely be a public health disaster um, if uh, it starts spreading, just like we've seen in uh, prisons and other places where people are confined to, to smaller spaces in close quarters, right? In part three, Professor Susan Dodds from La Trobe University in Australia and co-editor of the earlier mentioned book on vulnerability explained how carers both within healthcare and those caring for their own relatives, as well as those dependent on care, were vulnerable in the pandemic. And if you apply the vulnerability kind of lens to, to COVID, then you see that the vulnerability we all have to infection, when we all have that same vulnerability at the same time globally uh, with a new virus, um, it turns out that a lot of the social structures we had, which were um, uh, shaped to try to protect us against certain kinds of vulnerability, start breaking down. Um, so the, the capacity for our healthcare systems, for our economic systems, for our social welfare systems, to provide the kind of support we normally expect to make it possible for us as vulnerable beings to negotiate the world without um, being constantly aware of our vulnerability broken down. But also that we find that what we talk, talk about in the book as pathogenic vulnerability, vulnerabilities which might have been created as a result of an attempt to try to mitigate against vulnerability, um, certainly turns up in things like age care settings or disability care settings where we've got people who are dependent um, to have a reasonable quality of life on the care of specific other people to look after them. But in some cases, that care is not available because of um, changes to the workforce um, or because of policy restrictions. But it, that, that absence of care also um, sometimes has that, in fact, uh, inflection of there being an absence of oversight. So I think some people have been concerned in Australia, for example, following a uh, royal commission into um, abuses of people within um, aged care settings that, well, if nobody is going and visiting, then we don't know whether or not um, certain abuses are occurring. So we have on the one hand, um, the structures that allow for us to have decent quality of care settings, but we've got the carers are vulnerable. The people who are cared for are dependent on someone else to provide that care. And the policy settings make everyone more vulnerable. Um, so we've got that idea of pathogenic vulnerability arising from that. Um, and some of that's about failing to recognize the value of, of that care, which is reflected in the poor pay rates that those people have and the conditions often those people have who are providing that care, but also to our, our lack of valuing of people who are dependent on care. We don't see them as full citizens. Um, so I think that our inability to recognize that quickly enough has been partly a function um, of, uh, of a failure to socially value those areas. There was also a gendered aspect of vulnerability. For example, various caring jobs and majority of household duties are typical examples of feminized labor. Dr. Verena Wild and Professor Villa from the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich explored this issue in part four. And the other dimension where gender is important, I know more of that, is in relation to care uh, and in relation to um, who 
does which jobs and how important and how, uh, how, how relevant is that within the pandemic. And we know that, and that's very clear and that's really universal, it's uh, worldwide even, that for example, all um, jobs that are related to the care sector, nursing and caring after elderly and working in hospitals and um, caring after children, etc. These are overwhelmingly women's jobs. This is, this is feminized labor because of historical reasons. And thus, the whole kind of system that now in the pandemic situation depends on people working in hospitals, people taking care of elderly or sick or of children, etc., are mainly women. Um, and that is one aspect. The other aspect where gender is really important also in uh, regard to care is what we've been going through and still are in homeschooling, home office, um, the whole kind of confinement issues really going and pushing so much into and back and on families is by no means the family as such, but it's mainly mothers and women doing the enormous share. So that's very clear. That's very clear in the German situation, but also in many, many other parts of the world, um, the burden of uh, taking care of children, of the private uh, house, of, of all this, what's, you know, the chores, everything that has to be done is, um, again, feminized is women's labor. So those who are suffering probably more disproportionately um, and most are women in all sectors. I mean, now from this pandemic situation, colleagues in academia, we're seeing this now, there's evidence coming in. Um, female scientists are publishing a little bit less than men because they have less time to write papers, as we both know in the situation we are in, actually. Um, but also, you know, the, the, the nurse in the hospital, the uh, single mother with children. So women are much more affected in a negative way by the current uh, crisis than, than men. And this really on all levels of the social. But the, of mm -hmm. course, there are some women which are more privileged than others. That's also true. So it's always important to look at this gender and care issue in an intersectional way, as we say, so that it's not it's never gender alone, but it's always linked to other social differences and and inequality structures. So it's a social position that's marked by gender and other differences. But um, yeah, the, the care issue is feminized and it's super crucial to the whole pandemic crisis right now. Now, the phenomenon of vulnerability is not just observed in pandemic, but can be observed in daily life, in situations where different population groups find it difficult to reach that baseline because of various types of vulnerability. Certain characteristics and contexts that produce vulnerability are also fluid. Sometimes it's present, sometimes it's not, and it can be present, but exert effects only to a certain degree. Discrimination, geography, whether you're part of the labouring population, your socioeconomic ranking and more, all generate vulnerability. And all of these factors contribute to public health. We have to remember that public health does not operate in a vacuum and health outcomes can be influenced by societal values, the issue of policy and scarce resources. Hearst has developed a four-step approach to vulnerability. One, is there an identifiable potential wrong? Two, if yes, are some people identifiably more likely than others to incur this wrong or likely to incur it to a greater degree? Three, 
Who shares in the duty to minimize or avoid this wrong and does it include us in any way? And four, what should we do to minimize this increased likelihood or degree or to compensate for it in an ethically justifiable ways? Such an approach can help responsible institutions determine the kind of protection required to mitigate vulnerabilities created by any health policy. Now, the National Audit Office has made a map, which I will share in the show notes of this episode, that illustrate the new integrated care systems of the country. And in this interactive map, figures on elective care waiting lists, emergency admissions, life expectancies, mortality rates, cancer rates, deprivation ranks, and so on, are all reported. Now, this map shows that there are changes between the north of England and the south of England, between the cities and the country, and further demonstrates that there are different vulnerabilities across regions that cannot simply be addressed by a one-size-fits-all policy. Such policies also contribute to the unidentification of marginalised subpopulations, which further contribute to their epistemic injustice. Essentially, the ideas and concepts explored in the vulnerability series of the Just Emergency podcast are not just limited to global health emergencies, but are relevant to current national and global issues and can be applied wherever there is a baseline that cannot be met by a population group because of the presence of one or more vulnerabilities. So I encourage our listeners to listen to this podcast series and I'll add links to these episodes in the show notes. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next season. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it. For further information, check out the links in the show notes of this episode. See you next time.